Heavenly Father, teach us from Abraham's life. And teach us, Father, to understand these things have meaning not only for him but for us. Show us how the Word of God is intended to heal us and to change us, to make us men and women in the face and likeness of Christ. So often, Father, the world is seeking for things that it needs and always in the wrong way. And even sometimes the church is tempted, Father, to set the Word of God aside, to think of it as without application, without relevance. What a shame it is if we have that perspective, Father, for we are we are looking into the very heart and mind of God as we open the pages of the Bible, and we have before us what Christ himself said is greater than even the food that we desire to eat. I pray, Father, that we would never become someone who would look at the Word of God in that way. We would always have, Father, a hopeful expectation that as we turn the pages and we study what's within it, we would hear answers to the very fundamental questions and troubles of our lives. So I pray, Father, this morning you show us that again, teaching us from your Word. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you study the Bible for very long at all, you don't go very far in the pages of the text until you encounter teaching on covenants. It's a foundational part of the Bible. The Bible makes a lot of mention of covenants. You'll see a lot of covenants in the Bible. But even on pages where you don't see the word or an event that is characteristic of covenants, Nevertheless, in most cases, you're staring at the outcome or the result of covenants. The covenant, the word covenant is simply a fancy Bible term for a solemn agreement between two people. We would use a word like contract today, but it doesn't really work to make covenant contract. Contracts are different than what the Bible meant by covenants. For example, you could enter into a contract to buy a house or to do some work for somebody And if you break your covenant or your contract with them, most of the time you don't die. In the Bible, though, you did. In most cases, covenants came with a blood oath. And therefore, they were taken with much greater seriousness, much greater thought than what we would do today when we enter into a contract. So it's a different kind of sense. Every work of God in his creation is done on the basis of a covenant. God is all about covenants. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He uses covenantal agreements with men to reveal himself to men and to reveal his plans for them. That's how God works. God doesn't just have dialogue that is disconnected from his promises. His dialogue is always in the context of promises being made, assurances being made, covenants. That's how God works. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a relationship like that? Instead, we have relationships with people, even among family members, where we're always trying to read between the lines. Is, is this something I can depend on or not? Are they telling me the truth or not? With God, it's never that way. God's word is unbreakable, and therefore every covenant God makes is permanent and completely trustworthy. So this is the nature of God, speaking in covenantal terms to his people. These moments, wherever you see covenants in Scripture, these moments are important mile markers. Because they set the boundaries for history. God will go for long periods of time in the course of human history saying nothing. More than what he's already said. And then out of the blue he will come to somebody and he will say something new. A new covenant, a new arrangement, a new agreement. And that starts a new mile marker for God's plan of history. So when we get to these moments we take note of them because they're very important. Now a covenant is established in specific ways. With specific rituals. 
And when we see these rituals, it's a sign to us that, ah, here's a covenant being made. Sometimes scripture gives us these moments very clearly, like we will see today in chapter 15. But there are other times when covenants are not spelled out in scripture very clearly. We don't necessarily see them taking place. All we see is the effect of a covenant without actually seeing the moment it took place. For example, you could use a marriage as a point of reference for what I'm talking about. Marriages are entered into through a ritual process. The marriage ceremony. Very standard way we inaugurate a marriage. And sometimes you're present when that takes place. Sometimes you're invited to the wedding. And you show up and you watch the ceremony and you can see the ritual and you can see the covenant. And you can say, I was there when it began. There are other times, many, many other times, when we meet married couples. And we were not there when they were married at the ritual. But we can see evidence of the ritual now. You can tell they're married. She's picking on him and finishing his sentences for him, and he's ignoring her, and, you know, the the standard things that mark a marriage, right? So we know they're married. We see evidence of the fruit of that ritual, but we didn't necessarily see the ritual. Think of covenants in the Bible that way as well. Sometimes they're spelled out. Sometimes we simply see the result of them. In chapter 15 today, we see Abraham about to receive a covenant from God because we're going to see the ritual. But the ritual doesn't mean this is the moment in which God's promises are being made. This is the moment in which the ritual takes place. Those are different things. In verse 2, where we studied earlier, in chapter 15, we see Abram asking God questions. What God might give Abram, since he has no heirs. Now, as we learned last week, this whole conversation is set up because Abraham has been told he's going to have a land, an inheritance, and he's going to have a seed or a posterity. And at this point, God has just reminded him at the beginning of this chapter, don't worry, Abram, I'm your shield, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to bless you. As Abram hears those words, he knew in his heart, that's a meaningless promise if I'm not going to have anyone to leave it to. He recognized something that more of us could probably do well to think ourselves, and that is, it's meaningless to acquire something only to lose it at the end of our life. It's meaningless to have worked our whole life to acquire something only to have it gone at the end of our life. That's the basis for Christ's teaching we should store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Abraham's thinking about it in a similar fashion, but he's saying, God, your promise to me of an inheritance is nice, but until I have an heir, it doesn't really mean much. What are you going to give me that I might be able to hold on to this inheritance? And then God responded last week by assuring Abram he would, in fact, have heirs. So many, you couldn't count them. Abram accepted that promise. He believed it. Because he believed it, because he had faith in it, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Proving, as we said last week, that righteousness is obtained not on the basis of works, but only on the basis of a faith in God's promises. And we can follow in Abram's footsteps today in believing God as well. That was where we left off. Abram now continues in that conversation in verse 7. So he's heard, I will bless you. He said, well, nice, but who's going to be able to keep it? God said, don't worry, you're going to have plenty of people. Where do we go next? Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Let's get inside Abram's head for a moment, because I want you to understand what's going on in Abram's mind. This takes a moment of thought. Put yourself in his place for just a second. What did Abram think when he heard God saying, I brought you out of the land of Ur to possess this land. For example, we know Abram's already living as a nomad, right? We studied this earlier. He's living as a nomad purposely 
Not because that was his background or history. He's changed his lifestyle. He's now doing something new and different. Living as a nomad. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews told us, when we last looked at this, that Abram and even his sons, Isaac and Jacob, they all lived in tents specifically because they understood God's timeline. They recognized that God's promise to inherit this land was not a promise for them to have it in their lifetimes, but it was a promise that they would have it when they resurrected. When they die, go into the ground, and are with God in spirit form, when they finally get resurrected into a new body and return to this earth to live in the kingdom that's promised to Israel, then and only then will they finally see this promise fulfilled. They knew that. The writer tells us that. Remember in chapter 11, Hebrews 11:8, By faith, Abraham, when he called, obeyed by going out to a place which we, he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, because he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then the writer goes on in verse 13. And he says, all of these, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of these died in faith, listen, without receiving the promise. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed they had been thinking of the country that they were from, well, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the, the testimony of Scripture is clear. Abraham knew that the land God promised him was not going to become his until he was resurrected and he saw it in a future life. Okay, and that brings us back to the conversation. That's in your head. You're Abram. You're having this conversation with God, and you know that you're not going to get the land in your own lifetime. All right, now, God says, I promise you, you will have this land to possess it. And look what he asks next. Abram, when he hears those words, he knows the promise of the land won't be fulfilled till after his death. And he remembers God has assured that a multitude of his descendants will come after him and they will also have the land. So Abram asks a very reasonable and obvious question. How do I know that I'm going to possess it? Think about it. I'm going to live my whole life and I'm going to die without this land. You've already told me that. In fact, my ancestors are going to have the same kind of result. So what do I cling to? What do I point to in this world? What tangible evidence can I point to that anything you've said is going to happen? In fact, when I die, what are my ancestors going to have? My memories will be in the ground with me. I believe you. That's why it's been reckoned to me as righteousness, because I have faith in your word. But after I'm gone, what record will there be of this? Who can know that this is true? You see the point of view here? It's not a doubting point of view in the sense that he doesn't believe. We've already been told he believed. It's the heartfelt, earnest desire to have something tangible to protect and to remind him and others after him of this promise, of the reality of it. There are two reasons you ask a question like this. One is because you want proof because you doubt the promise, meaning you don't trust the person. The second reason, though, and the one that's in view here, is because you want something tangible to cling to, some confirmation until you wait for the fulfillment. Now, at this point, what does God say in response to this request? God, as you would expect, honors Abram's request. 
He presents him here with a covenant ritual. With a ritual. I've had people ask me in times past whether it's important or not for someone to go through the marriage covenant ritual. And it's a good question when you think about it. Because after all, you can get the marriage license downtown. That's not religious. That's just the law. And you can come home and share an apartment or share a home together. And that's basically living like you're married. Where does the marriage ritual part come in? Where, where is the meaning and the significance of that? Does God require it? Well, strictly speaking, it's not shown in the Word of God in any specific sense. We don't have that ritual displayed in the text. But we understand that God thinks of marriage in a very clear way. You are married or you are not. Once you're married, you're married for life. There's a clear understanding in God's mind that there's a moment of a marriage. So even though Scripture itself doesn't give us that ritual, it makes very clear that there is a day you're not married and then there is a day you are. So there must be a a point there somewhere where that takes place. What constitutes the point? Well, it's the moment two people make a public agreement to enter into that covenant. It's the ritual. The ritual has meaning in the sense that it defines for the individuals and for those who know them, this moment is the moment we forevermore now consider ourselves to be married. The ritual matters in that sense. Public display, something tangible, something You can point to something that shows the reality of the covenant. And that's what Abram's asking for here. And that's what God is about to give him. Look at verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. And Abram drove them away. God affirms his promise here by means of a ritual. And to prepare for the ritual, Abram is told to bring a collection of five animals to God. And then Abram was to prepare them in a certain way. He butchers them, the larger ones anyway, the larger animals. He cuts them literally into halves and lays them facing one another, so oriented so that they're like a mirror, probably. Now, the two birds are not cut in this particular case. They are killed, and they are facing one another. They're just not cut open. The halves of the animals that are cut are probably only about a foot or two apart, so don't get in your mind that they're long, long distances. They're just put on the ground next to each other with enough space that if someone wanted to, they could walk between them, and that's about all the distance. Now, you have to imagine, as Abram is doing this, particularly with the larger animals like the, the heifer, that as he butchers the animals, it's a bloody affair. As you're separating the halves of the carcasses, and then as you lay them on the ground, the blood in the muscle of the animal starts to drain, and eventually it's going to pool. And you're going to end up with, not to be graphic about it, but a pool of blood separating these two halves of the animals as they lay on the ground. That explains, at least in part, why there is a delay between the time Abram cuts these animals and the time that the ritual itself actually begins. Part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason was to allow time for the blood to collect. You see, the whole point is the blood. The whole point is to get bloody carcasses in place for this ritual. These are standard practices in a blood covenant. There are other types of covenants. There's salt covenants. People often carried little bags of salt with them because salt was something you absolutely needed to survive in the desert and you didn't get it very easily. So you'd keep salt with you at all times and you'd take a little salt in your diet. Well, you'd have a pouch of salt. Somebody else would have their pouch of salt. You might enter into a salt covenant. You take a pinch from your bag, they take a pinch from their bag, and you'd put them in each other's bags. The moment you let go, you can't tell your salt from their salt. 
It's a symbolic way of saying we are now in union together in some kind of covenant. But salt covenants were relatively minor kinds of agreements. I'll respect your land, you respect my land, things like that. You're saying something totally different when you enter into a blood covenant. The animal blood here was a substitute for the blood of those entering into the covenant. It stood for the blood of the people who were entering into an agreement together. And it was a graphic way of displaying, of demonstrating that if either party breaks the agreement they are now entering into, then this is what would happen to them at the hands of the other person. It was like giving permission to the other person to kill you if you break the covenant. Your blood would be spilled just as these animals have seen their blood spilled. That was the meaning of the covenant. And it was taken with great solemnity. If somebody broke a blood covenant, then under color of law, the authorities would give rights or give permission to the other party to kill the first party and do it lawfully because the blood covenant required it. In fact, in in Hebrew, the words for entering into a covenant, literally in Hebrew, they are cutting covenant. That's the term, cutting covenant. The cutting refers to the cutting of an animal. So that's the ritual that's taking place right now. Now, just so you know, the animals don't go to waste. At the conclusion of the ritual, they are roasted and their meat is then made the, the primary part of a big covenant meal that is shared between the parties. But there's significance in that too. Because as you share in the eating of the meat, part of the animal goes into your body, part of the animal goes into their body, it's like the salt being exchanged. Both people now have mingling in their body the flesh of these animals, which represent their own bodies. So it was symbolically a way of saying, you're in me and I'm in you and we're in a blood covenant and now nothing can separate us. Blood covenants, by the way, were for life. There's no expiration date on a blood covenant. So that's why you didn't enter into them casually. You enter into a blood covenant with someone, you've just become yoked with that person for life. And your life is literally on the line. So that's the kind of ritual we see taking place here. These carcasses now lie on the ground, and they lie there now for a while, and as a result, naturally, vultures start to gather, and they start to come down to eat the meat. That's what you'd expect. Abram knows that these carcasses are important to the covenant ritual, so he doesn't want them to be disturbed until God is ready to conduct the actual ceremony. So he does what you'd expect. He tries to scare the vultures off. But it's a curious scene. Don't you agree? I mean, with all that's being explained, all the very important details here in chapter 15, out of this important, momentous time in Abram's life, there's this one moment where we have to hear about the vultures and him driving them off. A curious detail. It seems too curious to just be thrown in there by accident. There's got to be something going on that we're not quite understanding. And... Sure enough, there is, or I wouldn't have gone through that whole explanation, right? It's our first hint that this ritual is being used by God to communicate something more than simply the inauguration of this covenant. God is using this moment to create a picture of something much bigger as well. Abram is made to wait here for God to perform the ritual because the waiting itself is a picture of how the covenant will be fulfilled. And the arrival of the vultures to pick apart at the sacrifice is also a picture But at this point, these pictures aren't fully clear to us, and the answers aren't given until later in the chapter. So I'm going to leave them where they are for us now and come back to them later. Let's look at verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, 
You shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Well, most of the day passes. So imagine the scene somewhere at the earlier part of the day as Abram has his conversation. God gives him his direction. Now, it takes some time to go find the animals, wherever they are in his stable of farm animals. It certainly takes time to butcher them, lay out the pieces. And then there was more time for the animals to lay there and the vultures to collect. So it's fair to say this may have been an all-day affair. And now we're at the very end of the day. The darkness of the evening is starting to come. And at that moment, we're told... God is ready for the ritual. And he places Abram into a deep sleep. Now, the phrase deep sleep should remind you a little of something we've studied here a few months back. Do you remember? In chapter 2 of Genesis, right? That was the same way in Hebrew that we hear God putting Adam to sleep before he takes the rib out of his body and uses it to create woman. It's exactly the same wording in Hebrew. It is the same kind of sleep, the supernatural sleep that God has used in the past and here again now to render someone incapacitated but not unconscious. This is an interesting kind of in-between. We're told Abram's feeling terror. He's feeling great darkness from the Lord's presence. That's because Abram is a man, though counted righteous, still with sin. And if you have sin and you come into the presence of a holy and just God, this is what you feel. For if we have any sin at all, you face the terror of a holy and just God who will bring judgment against sin. And in this special form of sleep, God has rendered Abram unable to act, unable to move, unconscious in that sense, but yet aware of his surroundings, so much so that he still has this fear and this terror. He's not knocked out. Similar to the way Adam was. Remember Adam? Adam knew where woman came from. He says, you are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He knew how woman had come about because the deep sleep God gave him made him incapacitated. Presumably it kept him from pain, but it left him aware of what God was doing because God wanted him to know. He wanted Abram to know. So while he's in the deep sleep, God begins to talk to Abram. He begins to disclose to Abram more of his plans concerning the promise. These are all in preparation for the ritual. He opens with a surprise announcement. At least that's the way I characterize it. Abram's descendants would live outside the promised land. Take note of the way God begins his statement to Abram. He says, no for certain. No for certain. Why does God need to say that? Doesn't everything he say come with certainty? But he's saying it because of what's inside Abram's head. God assures Abram here that his descendants will settle outside the land, but only for a short time, only for a predetermined period of time. We have to understand that Abram's real concern, based on all that God has said up to this point, seems to be that after I'm gone and my descendants have come along, isn't there some possibility, God, that my descendants might just mess this whole thing up? You've promised the land to me. You've told me that I've been faithful and that's why I'm counted as righteous. I'm doing my best to follow you. But who knows what my kids are going to do? If he'd only read ahead a little bit, he had good reason to be worried. Right? Who knows how it's going to go when I'm gone? In fact, the Jewish commentary, the Midrash, which is Jewish commentary on their own scriptures, the Midrash's commentary on this scene explains Abram's questions coming from a fear that his descendants would sin at some point, angering God and nullifying all the promises. That's how he's interpreted by Jewish rabbis to be seen here. Abram's sitting there saying to himself, 
I just don't believe that my people after me can keep this up long enough to make sure God stays happy long enough to make sure I get all these promises when I'm resurrected. How do I know this won't go away when I'm gone? And God turns to him and says, you know what, Abram? No, for certain, they're not going to be in the land, at least not for a time. It's as if God is saying, yes, Abram, they will live outside the land. You can be certain of that, but hold on. That's not the end of the story. And he goes on to say, not only are they going to leave the land, they're going to be slaves. They're going to be slaves in a foreign land to another people. Now, God doesn't mention that that place is Egypt here, but that's pretty wise when you think about it. If the people of Israel had known from the beginning that Egypt was going to be the place where they were going to be condemned, would you think they would have taken the trip? When Jacob was offered the chance to come down and be with Joseph in Egypt, do you think he would have gone down there if they had told him all along, this is the place that will enslave you? Probably not. He adds here as an aside that they're going to be in that land for 400 years. Now, the date 400 here is a bit of a confusion for folks, and I don't have time this morning to go through what Scripture says on the date. Let me give you the summary of it. 400 years here does not describe the length of time they are in bondage in Egypt. It's way too long. It represents, rather, the count of years from the day Isaac is weaned until Israel leaves Egypt. And only about half of that time are they actually enslaved. The years between the arrival of the promised son until Israel's receiving of her next covenant. That's the 400 years. So just as Abram's fears are running wild in his head, he's heard God confirm for him, no for certain, your people won't be in the land. No for certain, they're going to be enslaved. All of the fears in Abram's head are probably just churning up now. I knew I should be worried. Then God continues with the good news. He says, I'm going to keep my promises to you. I'm going to bring your descendants out, and I'm going to do so with many blessings. And though Abram will not live to see these things, God reminds him, you're going to go to the grave at a good old age, but you're going to go in peace, which is a way of saying you're not going to be enslaved. You're not going to have to see your people enslaved. All of this takes place after you. But then he says, after the fourth generation, they will return. And the four generations here refer to the four generations between when they leave for Egypt and when they come back. We actually get that in Exodus. Exodus 6 names them, starting with Levi, continuing through four generations, ultimately ending with Moses. So there are only four generations. It's about 215 years as you get the ages of those people. So there are four people that connect the people who went in to the people who go out. All right, now let's appreciate why there is that delay earlier when Abram was running the vultures off. You see the symbolism here, at least a little of it. God tells Abram that the nation, that his nation of descendants would be set outside the land for hundreds of years, that that would result in a delay before they would occupy the land as promised. And earlier, these carcasses being laid, exposed for a period of time while Abram was waiting for God, that is a picture of how at that time Israel will be exposed to the world. And the vultures are pictures of Egypt, essentially of the way they came and tried to pick at or tried to destroy what God has been doing through the nation of Israel. But Abram stopped them. And there's a picture in that. The covenant God is extending to Abram right now applies not only to Abram but to his descendants, to the children that will be called Israel. And there is a delay in the Lord bringing that covenant into reality for Israel, while they're in Egypt, that is. But Abram is their solution. Abram is what saves Israel. Abram is the reason they leave Egypt. It's the promises God made to Abram that result in Israel coming out of Egypt, of returning to the land. It's what God said when he spoke to Moses and he said, I hear the cries of my people and I remember my word to them, my promises to them, and I've raised you up to go get them. 
It's because of Abram. Not because of anything Abram does, but because of what God has said to Abram. Because of his promises to Abram. That's how you could say Abram's covenant saved Israel. Now, curiously, God says the delay is made necessary also because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's the other half of the delay. What he's literally saying to Abram is, the Canaanite people who live in the land right now, in the land that is supposedly Abram's, those people will be given a certain amount of time for their sin to be complete or full. Once that time is reached, then God will use Israel to conquer and judge these people when he comes in under Joshua's leadership. That all makes perfect sense. There's also a practical reason for why God creates this delay. How many people are in the nation of Israel when they leave Israel and go into Egypt? You all know? There's only 70 of them. How easily will 70 people defeat the millions or hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Canaanites that are in the land? Not easily. Even with God's power, granted, he can do what he wants with one person. Still, practically speaking, it's not going to be easy. Even if they do defeat them, how do you occupy the land with 70 people? But after they leave Egypt, by most accounts, they're in the millions. Now God has an army of millions of people that he can move into the land. So for practical reasons, the delay gives opportunity for the nation of Israel to grow into a people group big enough to actually carry out what he has them do under Joshua's leadership. But there is yet another reason for this delay and this reason for the Amorites being given opportunity to complete. God tells Abram that his descendants can't occupy the land until a Gentile people, he names them Amorites, but that's just a word for the Canaanite peoples, until these Gentile peoples are first given their full time under God's plan. Before Israel can occupy their land, he must give first the Gentile occupants their full opportunity. Once that time is complete, then Abram's descendants will enter into the land as promised. Can you see the picture that presents for this covenant? Today we see this picture here suggesting Israel's scattering during the time of the church when Gentiles are given opportunity to believe. But at some future point when the Gentile numbers are complete, then God will bring Israel back into her land and give her opportunity again under the Abrahamic covenant. That's the picture of the delay. Finally, after that explanation, God initiates the ritual. Let's end looking at the ritual this morning. Verse 17 through 21. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, and the Cabanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. God leaves Abram in the deep sleep, but then God himself, manifested through these symbols, moves through the pieces. He shows himself here in two ways, as smoke and as fire. Now the text literally says smoking pot, or oven, and where you see, in, in my case, it says flaming torch. Literally in Hebrew, it's rising flame. I believe that when you look at these in their real language, in the Hebrew language, what you're really seeing here are exactly the same things that were manifested to Israel in the desert under Moses. Pillar of smoke and fire. The reason I say that is the term smoking oven, smoking pot, doesn't really make any sense in Hebrew any more than it does for us. I mean, today, if you see smoking oven, it's usually the sign of a bad cook. It doesn't reflect anything in our mind. What does that mean? But a pot was a round object. A smoking pot would imply smoke coming out of a round object, like a column of smoke. 
So the sense here is of a column of smoke, a round object of smoke, and a rising flame, a pillar of flame, similar to what you see leading Israel through the desert. It would further make sense that God would be manifesting himself here in this earlier moment in exactly the same way that he did to the same people group, Israel, at a later moment in the desert. But in both cases, pre-incarnate. Before God has ever taken the form of man in Christ, these are the ways he appeared to people. The flame, the smoke, the burning bush, similar metaphors. So who is this we see then moving through the pieces? None other than God himself. God proceeds to move through the pieces of meat, through the pool of blood, by himself, represented by these symbols. Normally, if these were two human beings entering into this covenant, what they would do is they would just walk one after another through this same tunnel of blood. But think about how they're dressed in traditional garb, long flowing robes. And remember, you may have been here when I've taught in the the Gospel of Luke, the shamefulness that accompanied showing any lower part of your body, especially as a man. The very least you could show is your feet. You would never show your legs. To, To pull your garments up and reveal your legs to someone in that culture was utter shamefulness. Which explains why when you see the father running after the son and the prodigal son, he girds himself. That shows his willingness to take shame upon himself as he chases off after his son. Uh, Zechariah is sitting in the tree, showing his underside to the crowd from sitting above them. All of those things would have been terribly shameful acts. Well, in light of that, they had these very, very long robes. What do you think happens when you walk through a pool of blood with a really long robe? It gets bloody at the bottom. That's the whole point. You wear that blood on your cloak, at least for a time, as the show, as the sign that you've entered into a blood covenant with somebody. So the intent was, walk through the blood and show it. Get it on yourself. Make sure you're, you're visibly showing the evidence that you've entered into this covenant. But notice here, only God walks through it, so to speak. He can't walk any more than a God who is all spirit could walk, but he does his best. He does what he can do in light of his form. He proceeds through it. What does Abram do? Just lies there. What is communicated as God goes through and Abram does not? Who is obligated under the terms of this covenant? God, but not Abram. He's not obligated in the sense that he can't break it. You can't break something you haven't agreed to. You can't change something you're not a party to. The promise was to Abram but not with Abram. To his descendants, not with his descendants. Therefore, he and his descendants can do nothing to break something they are not a party to. That answers Abram's concerns. Abram's concerns are, I go to my grave, a bunch of new people pop up, who knows what they're going to do? Won't that jeopardize, endanger this covenant? God says, why don't you just lay there for a minute? It's all me. That's how we say the Abrahamic covenant is a suzerainty or one-way covenant. One-way meaning only one party. Suzerainty is a term for covenants that were decreed from a sovereign, from a greater party, to a lesser party, rather than one that's agreed between two equals. Suzerainty means a, a person of power grants to a lesser something to the lesser, and the lesser has nothing to say about it. They're just the receiver of it. This is a suzerainty covenant, a one-way covenant, emphasizing that you are saved by faith in a promise that is not dependent on your performance, but comes as a matter of grace. In fact, do you notice how many animals are involved in this particular ceremony? Five. 
What does the number five represent when it's used as a symbol in Scripture? Grace. The number five is the number for grace in the Bible. This is a moment of grace being communicated. God's unmerited favor. And the specific promise in the ritual is verses 18 through 21. Let's finish with this. Look at the geography here. Abram's descendants will receive the land between the brook of Egypt, which is the border of Israel and Egypt, all the way eastward to the Euphrates River, which is at the eastern side of Iraq. This is the span of land that is promised to Abram and his descendants. Further proving for us that these promises are not to be received until some future day. Further confirming that Abram was right to think that this isn't the land I'm going to get. This is not the one I'm being given. I'm waiting for something greater. Because the actual definition of its borders go well beyond anything Israel has ever had. Even under Solomon, they didn't go this far. This is a future obligation that God himself agreed to that one day yet will be fulfilled. Covenants are established with rituals. But even before this ritual was conducted, God had already been acting for Abram. God acted when he brought Abram out of Ur, did he not? He led Abram to faith into his promises. That's why he was declared righteous. We saw that earlier in this chapter. All of that came, though, before the ritual took place, did it not? So where does the ritual fit in with our relationship to God? Faith came because God established a relationship. From that faith came an opportunity to participate in a ritual to affirm what was already in place. What rituals do we participate in today to affirm what has been already put in place through a relationship God made with us? How about the communion meal we're about to go into? A perfect segue as we finish. This meal is a symbolic ritual of a covenant that was already established in Christ's blood and that we were made a party to by faith in a promise the promise that Christ's death on the cross is our means of salvation. And we hold to that promise now, but have as a tangible form of evidence, something we can cling to in the here and now, even as we wait for the future fulfillment when Christ returns. We cling now to this symbolic act that Christ himself said, do this in memory of me. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the tangible proof of what is already true in our hearts. And I ask And thank thank you, Father, because we all know how often our hopes are replaced by doubt. And our confidence, Father, leaks out. And in its place can be worries, can be questions. And you knew that our hearts would have that tendency to wander and that our minds, Father, would be vexed by these things. And so in in your wisdom and in your grace, you offered us tangible means of showing the truth of these covenants, the reality of them in our hearts, through simple means, through rituals that carry so much meaning. I pray, Father, that as we enter into the communion meal this morning, our mind would be set on not only the past in which we represent the things that happened, but more importantly, on the future, on the promises that we know are yet to be fulfilled for us and through us. We thank you, Father, that we were included by faith in those promises. And help us go out from this place and preach that truth to many others so that that promise may be theirs as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.